Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello listeners of Nighttime. I have something a little different to share with you, but something that I think is really special. As those of you who follow my social media accounts probably know, over the last few months I've been involved in a series of live events and appearances. I've been able to share audio from some of these events with you, like the Live in Toronto episode that covered the Black Donnellys. But some of these appearances just wouldn't make a good fit for release as an episode as they either featured so many projected visuals or they just summarized information already found in prior nighttime episodes. But a recent live recording I did in Halifax I think is a perfect fit for nighttime and it's what we're about to hear. I felt this episode is best considered as part three in my series covering the 1967 Shag Harbor UFO incident. And it will be titled as such, despite being recorded years after the release of that episode. Let me explain what happened. A few months back, I was invited to speak at the Shag Harbor UFO Festival. If you've never heard of it, it's a very cool annual event on Nova Scotia's southern shore that celebrates the UFO incident that the community's famous for. While there, I couldn't help but admire the openness and accessibility of the people involved in the 1967 UFO event. The original eyewitnesses were there, happily shaking hands and answering questions. And as far as the original civilian UFO investigator, a past guest of nighttime named Chris Stiles, not only was he there, he was serving as the event's MC. Now, Chris Stiles is someone who's always fascinated me. His investigation into this event is as effective as it is storied. In short, the Shag Harbor UFO event may have happened in 1967, but it remained virtually unknown until the early 90s when Chris Stiles began his investigation into it. The result of his work found the Shag Harbor UFO event pulled out of complete obscurity and instead considered Canada's and one of the world's most compelling UFO events. And now, as far as what we're going to hear in this episode, I was recently invited by the organizers of the Halifax Pop Explosion a local music festival, to do a live recording at a very cool local bar and performance space called the Carlton. When I agreed and began considering who I'd invite as a guest, I thought back to the UFO festival and Chris Stiles. Not surprisingly, Chris agreed, and we were all set to talk UFOs and freak out the squares scattered through the live audience. So let's get to it. Tonight... In this episode of Nighttime, I'll take you along with Chris Stiles and I to the Carlton in Halifax. Our topic is Chris Stiles' role in uncovering the Shag Harbor UFO incident.
Hi, everybody. I'm Jordan from the Nighttime Podcast. I'm a, a local person who covers crime, mysteries, strange events, and just odd occurrences from Canada and Atlanta, Canada. Um, I feel a bit more ease now that no one's attacked me yet, so I'll start. What I'm going to show you, first of all, is a, is a gift I recently received, which I think is quite cool. This is something I got when I attended a UFO festival at a place called the Woods Harbor Community Center, which is about two hours outside of, of Halifax. Um, when, I, when I was at this UFO festival, I ran into some people from the Royal Canadian Mint. So you may wonder why the Royal Canadian Mint would be at a UFO festival on the southern sh in a small fishing village on the southern shore of Nova Scotia. Well, believe it or not, it is the site of what's considered one of the world's most compelling or most famous UFO events, and the Royal Canadian Mint saw to it that they would commemorate the event on a coin. Um, it may not seem like much, but as you can imagine, a coin like this, which shows a UFO crashing into the water and glows under black light, for a UFO event to get commemorated on legal Canadian tender, it has to be a pretty big deal. And this one definitely is. It's considered by a lot of people Canada's Roswell, which is a, a nod to the Roswell, New Mexico UFO event. And I mean it when the Shag Harbor UFO incident is known all over the world. When I tell people I'm from Canada or Nova Scotia that are listening to me from abroad, they often ask about one of two things. Are you near Oak Island or have you ever been to Shag Harbor where the UFO festival or UFO incident is? And basically... As famous as the Shag Harbor UFO incident is, it was virtually unknown for about 25 years after it happened until a guy from Halifax decided he wanted to dabble in UFO investigations. And fatefully, the first event he decided to look at was a past report from a small fishing village in rural Nova Scotia. The work he did basically uncovered a story as deep as the waters a UFO was said to crash into. And the result of his work multiple books, multiple television appearances and documentaries have put Shag Harbor on the map, both as a place with a hilarious name and a place with, again, the world's, one of the world's most compelling UFO events. So who I'm going to invite to the stage, if you can hear me from the back, is the ufologist largely responsible for uncovering the Shag Harbor story, Chris Stiles. There he is. Welcome, Chris. Grab a seat, pour a water, make yourself at home. So first thing, Chris, while we get set up here, if you could, like I know we don't have a lot of time, and once you get talking, any minute I'm expecting Men in Black to charge in and shut us down. So we're going to jump right into it. Always a risk, Jordan. It, yeah, and it happens. So the, the first, and that's why I was uncomfortable with even doing it here, because I know how far we, like CSIS has an office down there, the police station's here. They got one on the northwest arm, unless they've moved it. Okay, well, let's just get into it before they show up. But first thing, like I know this is something you spent 25 so years or so working on. This is a story that a big part of your life went into uncovering this story. You wrote books about it. There's been documentaries, television appearances. So take that entire story that you uncovered and break it down into about two paragraphs. Okay. What well, happened in Shag Harbor? In 1967, uh, local people in Shag Harbor saw a set of flashing lights that hit an unusual pattern, unlike commercial traffic. And they hovered over the water there for several minutes, tilted to a 45-degree angle, and descended rapidly to the water's surface where they hit and produced the flash of the sound of an explosion. Mm -hmm. 
people called the nearby RCMP. One of the key things in this case, nobody reported a UFO. Everybody that called was excited and simply thought there'd been a plane crash or simply that lights had entered the water. RCMP came and resulted in a military search, divers, ships from Halifax, became a headline story on the front of the Halifax Herald. Could be something concrete in Shag Harbor UFO, RCAF. They searched for five days, the search ended, claiming nil results. To this day, the case remains open and unsolved. Mm -hmm. and one thing that I find so compelling about Shag Harbor is it's not the kind of thing, like when, when people think of UFO sighting, they think some guy in his backyard having a cigarette sees a weird light. This isn't like one guy saw something. Like give, no. Just to put it in perspective, like how many people saw this? Well, initially, seven people called the nearby RCMP detachment in Barrington Passage. And by the time they got to the scene, and by the way, one of the officers, Ron Pond, who was on Cape Sable Island, saw it both in the air and on the water. A crowd formed by the fishing plant there known as the Moss Plant locally, and there were about 70 people there eventually. Mm -hmm. And they're watching the thing still move upon the water. The RCMP commandeered two boats, get the Coast Guard involved from nearby Clark's Harbor, the object submerges before they could reach it. Military search goes on, and like I say, five days later, it's canceled with a claim of nil results. Mm -hmm. And this is something, so again, they see the lights crash into the water. They commandeer fishing boats, meaning a bunch of guys get in boats and go out there, assuming they're going to be you know, pulling survivors from a plane crash out of the water. That's right, and that was it. And again, you know, I can't stress too much that none of them reported a UFO. What they remember, and they talk in great detail about was they had that feeling just like the people that responded when Swiss Air 111 went down in Peggy's Cove. You know, you show up when you get that call, members, fishermen, most of them are in bed. <laughs> Their fear is for recovery, lives, lives lost. Uh, nobody had referred to this as a UFO event. It was the authorities, which is very different from something like Roswell, mm -hmm. that first deemed the label. Mm -hmm. So that's what we know about the event now. But let's just back it up to kind of the beginning. So the very beginning. I imagine you're someone who's always been into UFO stories, perhaps. Why don't you give me your history before you got into investigating? Like, were you always into this? Yeah, but I never belonged to a group. You know, I was just genuine interest, just like I was about anything that's curious, unsolved, whatever. And um, But part of the reason for that was that same night when I was 12, I witnessed a UFO in Dartmouth. It was part of you know, that larger incident, researchers now call it the night of the UFOs. Many people reported that one in the paper, too. Mm -hmm. You know, seeing is believing, it's a cliche, but it's so true. I can give you all kinds of intellectual arguments, proof, documents, what the people have told me. But at the same time, seeing is believing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was just that period, too, when it seemed like anything was possible. And, you know, the UFO phenomenon is a worldwide phenomenon, Jordan, but the cases here are second to none. Mm -hmm. And that would be one of them. My dad also, you see, was in the Navy at the time, part of the support crew. So it kind of stayed with me. Good. So you're into it. You saw one when you were 12. What led to you being like, you know what, I want to join a group and start actually investigating it? What was your motivation to get into that? Well, I didn't wait to join a group. No. Uh, that came later, and then I became disenchanted. But what happened was I saw a rerun of the initial sort of segment piece on Unsolved Mysteries that dealt with the Roswell incident. Okay. I was watching it with a close friend, and when it was over, she said, what do you think? She goes, could those things actually happen? And I said, well, I don't know about that one. I get a few questions. And, but I said, I know it happened because it happened here. Mm -hmm. And that was the start. She dared me to call Stanton Friedman, the late Stanton Friedman mm -hmm. in Fredericton, and I did. 
and one thing led to another. And you know, at first, that first thing I'll never forget, I'll tell you how practical Stanton was. He listened to my story. I didn't know where he was when I called him. He was in Austin, Texas, and go into a meeting, but he made time. And I told him the outline. I didn't know the date or where it was at the time exactly. And he said, well, you're in luck, Chris. I'll tell you why. He says, fishermen don't move. And that's how it began. Hmm. Now, so you decided to get into researching and investigations and whatnot. With, was it, did you decide to get into that for this particular story of Shag Harbor? Or did you decide to do research into an event and choose it after? I, well, Shag Harbor was the puzzle on my mind because when I saw the headline story in the Halifax Herald, such a conservative broadsheet, mm-hmm. I was young enough to know how significant that was. It wasn't the National Car, and I was like, yes, yes, the truth's going to come out. Um, but it didn't happen. And when it was canceled, they're saying, look, it was one of those things that went in. We don't know what it was. Could have been anything. Mm-hmm. Well, I was disappointed, and I thought something that real something that solid that had elicited that reaction should be solvable, should have an answer. And I thought, well, why not me? Mm-hmm. It, but at the time, Jordan, listen, I had no intention of writing a book or going on TV. I was just looking for answers. I was curious, on a claim, unemployed, time in my hands. One yeah. thing led to another, and I was persistent and lucky, both. An unemployed UFO investigator. I'm shocked. Well, that's, sure. <laughs> Work for me. <laughs> um, so when you, when you started getting into Shag Harbor, like at what point was it that you started to find things that you're like, you know what, this is a lot bigger than I expected? Well, very early on, and I, like I say, I have to credit it. There were a lot of good people out there. Stan, late Stanton Freeman was one of them, and Tony Uneas and others. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I went to a library and just asked for people's help with the Access to Information Act and things. And it was a steep, quick learning curve, and I learned from my mistakes and you just realize that, you know, you hear so much. Well, even in the early 90s, we were getting into that period of time when, when people, if you couldn't Google it up, it didn't happen. And I learned if you wanted the real answers, you had to get out of the armchair. You had to press the flesh. You had to see the people. You had to see what they hadn't done. And mm-hmm. then you had to still go do it. Mm-hmm. So when you start your research, I know you're, you're kind of famous for being like a dog nose dig into it and call people and show up at their door type of UFO investigator. What did the people in Shag Harbor think when you show up there to talk about, you know, 25 years ago when all these fishermen saw a UFO? Like, were they open to sharing all this with you? Uh, Most people didn't know what I was talking about until I found some of the the handful of eyewitnesses who were there. Mm -hmm. Because it had largely been just forgotten about as a topic. Uh, I was even thrown out of a few places. But... um, Eventually, that, but attitudes change, yeah. you know what I mean? And eventually, and I'm very glad this, the community learned to embrace it. And, um, you know, it, it just helps dispel the stigma, I think, over time. And I think the coin is a marker of that, that this has transitioned yeah. from just another UFO case to Canadian history. Yeah, well, there was some, uh, quite a bit of news reports when this coin came out. And some of them, one of them, the headline was something like, did the Canadian government just admit that UFOs are real with the release of this coin? Which isn't necessarily what happened, but at least it adds credibility specifically to the Shag Harbor event. I, I, I think, at least, that's how I feel about it. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
But I mean, as I started getting results, that all changed. And, and just to give it to you, there were so many things. But, but I can remember one of the exciting times, you know, uh, I mean, nowadays my, my mailbox is not, my P.O. box is not that exciting or, or my computer. I didn't have a computer then. But I can remember opening a document that came to me from the Directorate of History at D&D headquarters, and there was a, a paragraph. Uh, there was a, a document, a memo, that went through defense headquarters 36 hours after the incident. Mm -hmm. And paragraph 3 said quite clearly, in black and white, the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax has done a preliminary investigation and has completely discounted the possibility that this UFO sighting was caused by a flare, float, aircraft, or in fact, any known object. Mm -hmm. I got excited. And I used to call it the million-dollar document. Well, it hasn't paid off so well that way. But you knew... You, you got it. I gave you a drink ticket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, there's been a few free meals, and that's another story for another day. But Yeah. So eventually, you, I, I believe the news basically first broke with your book, Dark Object. Was that kind of the first, basically, unveiling of your, your work? Um, yeah, I, w I would say. Well, there'd already been talk. I mean, um, like I say, at the beginning, I had no intention of doing that or going on TV. But before the book came out, I'd appeared on national TV on things like the Deanie Petty show, you know, and down in the U.S. and that. No, I, I have no on. idea what that is. But but if you Google Chris Stiles UFO, you'll see kind of you through the ages talking about Shag Harbor. Yeah, you know, I, I don't even remember all that I did. But I been on a lot of, did a lot of media, did a lot of spots. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it was funny. Uh, the first trips to the States were interesting because I, I enjoyed them. They seemed more focused on the case. In Canada here, when you do an interview, often it was like you'd read today, the next day something in the paper and it would be uh, uh, Hollywood show comes to film 30-year-old UFO case. That was the story. It wasn't the latest discovery of a document or an artifact or whatever or a new witness or maybe a theory as to what really happened. The focus was on the media attention it got elsewhere. You know, and that still sometimes happens. Yeah. And now, given that this is something that happened in 67, a small fishing village in Nova Scotia, it's managed basically year after year. The Shag Harbor event manages to always stay relevant, and there's always a reason for people to kind of talk about this, be it documentaries, TV, books, or just online on Reddit, mm -hmm. people chatting about this. Tell me about the work that you did and the things that you were involved in to keep the story top of mind for people involved in the UFO phenomenon? To be honest, I have to give the credit to the story itself because although I never stopped digging or looking or keeping an open mind to it, 
things would surface as the ripples went out there through media or through reruns, through reprints of books or whatever, mm -hmm. or other people who embrace the story, say like somebody, a journalist like Antonio Yuneus, who spoke of it in Japan, huh. who I did interviews over there in Japan. You know, it was spreading around the world. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that, you know, as it went out there, people would come forward, like Pan Am 160. It was only a few years ago that mm -hmm. these pilots realized that's what they nearly collided with over the Gulf of Maine mm -hmm. and brought their reports, called me, flew themselves up here to be interviewed from, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it just goes one thing leads to another. Yeah. And there's more depth. There were people out there who know things about this case that have yet to come forward. Some will willingly take it to the grave. Others just have yet to hear the story. Mm -hmm. You know, because here in Nova Scotia, you know, it's not New Mexico. You know, uh, if this had been somewhere else, it would have been, we, we'd have been very sick of hearing about it. But up here, you know, people go home, they make a sandwich, they pay the power bill. Yeah. They don't have a lot of time for UFOs. <laughs> I, I'm always surprised that, like, local people, I find, often don't know the story. And if they do, all, right. they, all they know is that there was a UFO. That's all I know about it. Sure. But it's often when I talk to people from... Other countries, of course, they're into UFOs, but they know it in depth. Yes. And they look up to you big time as, yeah, as that, one it, of the best. Yeah, it shocks me. You know, I, I walk around Halifax, and sometimes people say, who's that guy? You go, oh, he used to play in a band, I think. Well, correct. But anyway, I walk down the street in New York, and here's what you get. You're going to like this. They go, oh, it's the UFO guy. You're from Sag Harbor, oh. which is on Long Island, right? I go, no, it's Sag um, yes, Sag Harbor. Yeah. Right? They try to Americanize it. But to be honest, it's, it's gratifying. You walk down Fifth Avenue and people come up and they know about Sag Harbor. Yeah. Although they may pronounce it differently. Well, what's funny is you can walk through Halifax and I bet you you don't get that. No, very I often. don't. It's rare, right? Yeah. But yeah. Well, let's get into the, the festival because it's something I think people in Nova Scotia should should get involved in more maybe than they do. Tell me a bit about the annual UFO festival and maybe some highlights of kind of your favorite moments over the year, over the years. Well, it's gone through several phases. I mean, there's been some pretty meager years where we've gone down there. You've had low attendance. You know, the local group at the time did not promote it well. But, you know, what I always tell people is if there's 10 people out there or 1,000 people, I do the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, and try to show the same level of interest. You know, it's the topic that grabs me. It's the work. But some years are different than others down there. You were just down for a rather lively one this yeah, year. Yeah, that's awesome. And it, I just came up and told them the puncher after it was done. We were down there. We had good attendance. Of course, the coin, it was like Beatlemania the first night. Everyone trying to get one for sale it was kind of kooky. Everybody did some great presentations, especially this guy. He did one that was very touching about family. And people still have been calling me about it. I want to say oh, really? that it was, it was great. Awesome. And there were a lot of other good ones, too. Mm -hmm. Well, what I remember this year, for example, just to pick the most current thing, is after Jordan left at, what, 4 p.m., something in the afternoon? Yeah, after midnight at 3 a.m. in the morning, the two representatives from the Royal Canadian Mint were coming back. Their duties were kind of over, so they went out on town to enjoy themselves. And they come back to their hotel. Guess what's hovering over the hotel? A UFO. And they call me up at 3 a.m. I'm 12 miles in a cabin up the Clyde River. And they are just so excited, but they did shoot some video on that, and it's gone on. It's very similar to a sighting we had there a year ago. And that's the thing down there. There's a lot of activity still. It's, it's a weird place. It's a living thing. 
Yeah. It's so common. People on Cape Sable Island, often they don't report anymore. They just look and they go, oh, they're back. Yeah. I was amazed. When I, really? talked, when I talked to the two representatives from the Royal Canadian Mint, they were there just to promote the coin. Oh, yeah. They weren't thinking of planning on seeing anything no. or participating in any way. But what surprised me about it is how much they knew about Shag Harbor and the UFO event yeah. in in the context of that being an important event, they knew about all these other minor Canadian events, UFO yeah. events. So I was saying to them, like, when you got into, you know, PR for the Royal Canadian Mint, did you expect to dive down the UFO rabbit hole? And now here they are reporting a sighting to you. Yeah, they're still waiting for my analysis of it, and I'll be doing that when I go home tonight. Um, at first, I didn't think the video and the clues they had were, were going to be able to be connected in that and it took a lot of sifting you know you know your your phone is i tell anybody the things they're going to be in a position that works at night or on ships or be outside a lot that might shoot a ufo look uh, you know ask santa for a good camera for christmas you know yeah. uh, you know canon eos or better yeah that would be good uh phones aren't the best but between that the textual description and other witnesses that are tied in with it I feel that they likely saw something that me, Justin Brown, Dick, and others saw down there the year before. We were lucky enough the year before, that was so exciting, to have a daytime sighting for 120 minutes and shot extensive video. And we're still analyzing that and figuring out. I, I'm hoping someday to be able to raise funds, go down there and do an extended sky search through the summer fall. <laughs> That'd be very cool. That would be my next big thing if I get it off the ground. Yeah, something I should have said at the beginning, because not everybody in here is into the UFO phenomenon. People often hear UFO and think of it as, you know, alien spaceship. Yeah. Why don't you just add a definition to UFO for what these people could be seeing well, or I, what exactly happened? I, I'm going to start just by giving the simplest of definitions and because things like even the Condon Committee had to use this. Because mm -hmm. when you try to tie it down to, like, do you have a craft? Do you have to have lights? Do you have to have this? Do you need an abduction? When you try to define it, usually they end up having to use a very open definition. And the most common one that's been used on the serious scientific discoveries is the sighting of something that's simply puzzling to the observer. Mm -hmm. Think about how open that is. Mm -hmm. It can be anything, right? But, you know, the trouble is nowadays the media connects it so much with alien things and that it certainly is a possibility. Mm -hmm. But some of the things we've been seeing there lately could actually be a living thing in themselves. It could be from high up in the stratosphere that we don't normally see. It comes down when it's injured or curious or bothered by something. You know, there's just a world of other possibilities, and it's really interesting to have that open mind. Aliens could have... I'll say one thing. What I have learned is I feel that the unknowns have several causes. Mm -hmm. It isn't one thing, and aliens is certainly a possibility. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I find, like, just with the term and kind of the social baggage that goes with it, UFO, what I find interesting is it started kind of as flying saucers. Then they added UFO to sound maybe a bit it, more it scientific. It started as flying discs. Flying discs, okay. Yes. Then UFO now has the social content, uh, the social kind of taboo around it. Sure. And a lot of people are using UAP for unidentified aerial phenomenon. So mm. I guess for people like you, you're not necessarily hunting aliens as much as you're basically looking at base, a puzzle in the sky and trying to figure out what could be responsible. Is that a good way to summarize I, it? I, I actually try to keep an open mind. I know a lot of people say that, but I, I don't think they do. The, unfortunately, most people involved gravitate toward one end. You have this, the skeptics, and you have the true believers, you know, that come in with a lot of presumption, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's okay. I don't bend arms. People can believe what they want or not believe what they want. But, you know, if you keep an open mind, you're going to learn things. And I'll tell you one thing about UFOs. They haven't disappointed me. When you get out of the armchair and you get up and meet the people or see something yourself, if you're lucky, I've only been a couple times, is... 
you know, the thing is, when you start looking, you may not find what you're looking for, but often you find something better. Yeah. Uh, I see a guy with a black suit coming in in a bag, and he's looking pretty pissed. Just before he charges at us, people who want to learn more about Shag Harbor in the UFO event, what should they do? Where do they go? What book do you recommend that you may have written? <laughs> I, I actually have a new one coming out, but I, I, I fail to recommend it until I see what editing goes on in it. Anyway, the, the most complete book on the Shag Harbor, and if that is your focus of interest, you can borrow it from the library. You don't have to buy them. You may have to wait a bit. Is uh, Impact to Contact that I co-wrote with Graham Sims. It, it has the most complete and most accurate version, but as... You can guess, like, I'm always digging. There's more sense. There's a bit of follow-up in that new book that comes out. I don't know what they're going to call it in the end. The working title was... What was the working title? I <laughs> spent too yeah. long at the computer on that. Yeah. Um, and for the YouTube kind of generation, there's a really good documentary about Oh, Shane yeah, Harbor. yeah. The, the, there's a number of them on there. Um, and perhaps the best one, again, that's close to being mostly accurate, is one that was made just a few years back called UFO Files, Canada's Roswell. And that's on. You can view it for nothing without commercials. The runtime's only 45 minutes. It gives a rather complete overview of what I've done. I, it's funny. I, I love the reenactment of me at 12 years old. Like, it's a little bit accurate, you know. Yeah. But, um, you know, no, it does. It gives you a good, concise overview of the case that, you know, doesn't mislead you. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll wrap it up with that before we get uh, beat down. If anyone sees anything weird in the sky, email me. And I'll forward it along to you. Yeah. And we'll get to the bottom. I don't of it. keep a wedge pay, uh, web page, and I don't Facebook. But everybody like these guys knows how to get hold of me. These and guys. I'll serve. Yeah. <laughs> the All real right. Star Wars, the guys that do the work. I, they may not be out of the armchair, but they put long hours in it, and thank God they do. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Thanks for your interest. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. If anyone wants to listen to my podcast, you can find me on nighttimepodcast.com. Thanks, everybody. I don't know if it was apparent in the recording, but the majority, if not all the people in attendance, weren't what I would call UFO people. But I think by the end of it, Chris had pried open quite a few minds. I'll be curious if I recognize any of them at the next Shag Harbor UFO Festival. And with that, I'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. I want to again thank Chris Stiles for braving Halifax's parking crisis and joining me for this talk. Chris, I've told you this many times, but I'm a huge fan of yours and a great admirer of your work. I'm proud to call you a friend. And for those of you who are interested in learning more about Chris Stiles' investigation into Shag Harbor and the story he uncovered, I've added links to some documentaries he appeared in and some books he wrote in the episode notes. Every one of them is amazing. Next, a big shout-out to the Canadian bands Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause who provide the majority of the music you hear on Nighttime. You can check out these great bands with the link in the episode notes. And of course, the biggest thanks of all goes out to everyone listening. Without you, I'd have no excuse to spend so much of my time putting this show together. For anyone out there who wants more Nighttime, please consider supporting my Patreon campaign. For a dollar a month, you can access the ad-free premium feed, which provides early releases of the episodes. And for a couple dollars more, you can also access the Nightcap After Show, in which I and a guest climb even further down the rabbit hole than what you'll hear on the main episode. You can join my Patreon and access the supporter content by visiting patreon.com 
slash nighttime podcast. And with that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome all the new members to the group. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help me financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and by, and by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. Alexa, play Something Mysterious by the Night Flight Orchestra. Okay, Google. Play Something Mysterious by the Night Flight Orchestra. New on Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copycat on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner, all new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.